Let us uh, continue in worship this morning as we now give our full attention to God's Word. This morning, the Lord is speaking to us from Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. pursuit of wisdom. We will not read the whole Proverbs, uh, but the first five verses, just to get the context in our minds. Proverbs 2, beginning verse 1, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In his uh, introduction to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin said these words, and I quote, The whole sum of our wisdom... The kind that deserves to be called true and assured wisdom broadly consists of two parts, namely the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The purpose of the knowledge of God is to show not only that there is one God whom all must worship and honor, but also that he is the fount of all truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy, power, and holiness. The purpose of the knowledge of ourselves is to show us our weakness, misery, vanity, and vileness, to fill us with despair, distrust, and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God, for in Him is found all that is good and of which we ourselves are empty and deprived, end quote. I simply don't know of a better way to explain the heart of the book of Proverbs than that. Practically, every proverb deals with this twofold knowledge, meaning of God and of ourselves, and that, my friends, is the heart of wisdom. So what is Proverbs seeking to show us ultimately then? That to be full of myself, that to be full of myself is my greatest woe. And that to be filled with the knowledge of God is my greatest blessing. So here's my humble attempt at applying Calvin's words to the whole book of Proverbs. The main burden of this book is, is to lead us away from ourselves and unto God. Therefore, rather than being a book that is calling us to be good, as some might think, this is a book calling us to acknowledge that we are not good, but that God is, and that we desperately need Him for all things in life. In a general sense, then, And in varying degrees, 
all of Proverbs is seeking to cement this twofold knowledge within us. Proverbs chapter 2 is no exception to this general principle. In fact, it was precisely my study of Proverbs 2 that reminded me of the words of Calvin and led me to that basic application of the twofold knowledge. So now let us see how Proverbs chapter 2 presents to us this twofold knowledge. And it all begins, once again, with the knowledge of ourselves. Let me see if I can work this out. The pursuit of wisdom first presupposes three internal dispositions. The pursuit of wisdom presupposes three internal dispositions. It doesn't take much to see that for Solomon, wisdom involves a very, very intentional quest, which is represented clearly in three if statements that are found in verses 1 through 4. In other words, wisdom will never happen by osmosis. Osmosis is the process of unconscious assimilation of ideas. But wisdom doesn't just stick to your brain and mind by simply floating around the church building on Sunday mornings. That would be wonderful, but it doesn't happen. As if coming to church enough times will make you wise by default. Wisdom in that sense is not really contagious. Not at all. Consider with me the three internal dispositions that are required in the pursuit of wisdom. First disposition, eager attentiveness. Eager attentiveness. Verses 1 and 2, my son, if, notice that, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Now, before cruise control was or became a widespread feature in cars, most drivers had to pay close attention to the amount of pressure they exerted on the gas pedal to ensure compliance with the speed limit. If you didn't pay attention, speeding was almost always the result. And that's true uh, still, right? If you don't pay attention, you find yourself speeding and you're like, oh, sorry, Lord. You had to be attentive, constantly looking at the speedometer. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. Sure, whatever. Now, forgive the cliche, but there is no cruise control in the Christian life. Really, like we mean that, which means you have to be attentive to the words of God that he has placed in your hands, constantly looking at them. If not, you're opening yourself up to trouble. If you are attentive, you can have wisdom, says Solomon. How? Treasure the words up. As the hymn says, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Now, second disposition. Real urgency. Real urgency. Verse 3. Yes, if, again, if, you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Emergencies are often justifications for raising our voice. If you see someone asleep inside a house on fire, you will raise your voice due to an overwhelming sense of what? Urgency. Likewise, when it comes to wisdom, you must have a sense of urgency such 
that will prompt you to call out for it. I will develop this further in just a moment. Consider the third disposition. Proper estimation. Proper estimation. Verse 4. If you seek wisdom like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. What a verse that is. Some of us who are in a certain stage in life are beginning to give serious thought to the cost of education as we plan to send our children off to college. And all I have to say is, oh boy. But as we go through this stage, <laughs> we put things in balance, don't we? What's a good education worth to us? How high do we esteem it? The question embedded in verse 4 is the same. What is wisdom worth to you? If you're thinking rightly about this, then wisdom is more valuable than all the treasures in this world. You, you can become rich through great education, but what will become of your riches if you also become a fool? In short, the Spirit of God, not me, the Spirit of God is asking us, you and I, when it comes to wisdom, how bad do you really want it? Moreover, these three internal dispositions, attentiveness, urgency, and estimation, reveal an underlying awareness on our part. Here's where it gets very good. Th that is the awareness that our so-called autonomous or innate wisdom is actually futile. That apart from God, as Calvin said, we are destitute of everything that is good. So the first step toward wisdom is to acknowledge that you need it. Or you can also think of it in reverse. The first step toward foolishness is to claim to be wise. Romans 1.22. My dear friend, you must make it your ambition to come to God on a regular basis to ask wisdom from Him in prayer and through the Word. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul instructed them and warned those believers to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. Ephesians 4.17. If Paul warned them about this, it can only mean one thing. It is actually possible for professing Christians to give themselves into a futile mind. It is possible. Beware of this danger and let this knowledge of yourself lead you into a greater dependence upon God. Now consider second, the pursuit of wisdom leads to one supreme blessing. Leads to one supreme blessing. Verse 5, and what is that blessing? Godly fear. Godly fear. Verse 5 begins, then, then, meaning, if you cultivate these three internal dispositions, then and only then will you understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The first and hopefully the last time I ever saw a tornado in person was while driving into Granbury not that very long ago. And I remember experiencing strong mixed emotions. First, 
It was so impressive, I could not stop looking at it in awe. Second, it was so impressive, I could not stop looking at it in fear. I thought, here is something majestic to behold and yet never to be played with. We could say that a tornado is deadly majesty, is deadly majesty. When we pursue wisdom through the three internal dispositions we saw in verses 1 through 4, the supreme blessing, consider this, the supreme blessing that we receive is that we begin to think of God rightly, which leads to a proper estimation of Him. Notice that it is not just belief in the Lord, but the fear of Him that is received in verse 5. The blessing of pursuing wisdom persistently is that we begin to shed whatever thoughts of God we might be tempted to entertain in our minds that are unworthy of Him. Wisdom leads you not only to greater faith in God, broadly speaking, but also to proper thoughts about God. Let me say it differently. Your thoughts of God are the most accurate gauge by which to measure your true wisdom. Then how should we think of God then? Well, after the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, Moses elevated a song of praise and worship to God in which Moses said this in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, doing wonders. Uh, sometimes I, uh, I think we should save the word awesome for God alone. Here's something about God that we must understand. He is majestic because of his beauty, which is expressed through his absolute holiness. God is separate from all evil and completely distinct in his perfections. There is no spot, there is no wrinkle or any such thing in him, but the same majestic holiness that inspires the deepest awe and reverence is deadly to sinners. So much so that when Isaiah saw the Lord, he simultaneously said what? Woe is me. He brought a curse upon himself. Why? For my eyes have seen the king of glory. Thus, the fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement of my unworthiness and God's otherness. His supreme majesty. The fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement that he is not like me. He is majestic in holiness. It is like what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12 Verse 29 of Hebrews, our God, he said, is a consuming fire, a consuming fire. I don't know about you, but you don't, you don't handle, handle lightly a consuming fire. Therefore, how must our worship of him be? Well, he answers. By the way, worship God includes thinking about God. How is our worship? must be acceptable with reverence and awe. 
Hebrews 12, 28. Think about this. We must treat God, consider God, acknowledge God, and think of God as worthy of all reverence and utmost respect. But this is the blessing of pursuing wisdom wholeheartedly. Moreover, this fear of the Lord leads to several practical consequences. We'll get to that soon, so hold that thought. For now, consider with me verses 6 through 8, in which we see the next component in the pursuit of wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom, and this comes from verse 5, the pursuit of wisdom rests upon, rests upon one unfailing source. One unfailing source. What is that source? The Lord. The Lord. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom and knowledge are found in God and in God alone. There is no wisdom. There is no knowledge outside of God. So the fact is this. God truly is the source of all wisdom, for he is all wise in and of himself. There's no one in this room who can say that. He doesn't look for wisdom somewhere else. Rather, God is wisdom in himself. On a practical level, this means that you ought not to make of anything earthly your primary source of wisdom and truth. There is always a danger in that. Only God should be that to you. I'm not saying you should not seek the counsel of others, the insight of others, or that you shouldn't sit under the preaching of God's word. Neither am I saying that you should reject confessions of faith, books, fellowship, or conferences. All that can be good to our souls and help us immensely. I'm not denying any of this, but please don't miss the direct point being made in verse 6. Only the Lord can actually give you wisdom. And this is coming from someone who actually loves books. I'm surrounded by them in my office. But I have always to come to this conclusion. God alone is the source of my wisdom, verse 6. God alone is my shield, verse 7. And God alone is the guardian of my path and the one who watches over my way, verse 8. He alone can do that. No single man, book, ministry, etc. can have that ultimacy in my life. I think this is extremely relevant for us, especially in our day of quick theological accessibility in the, is the order of the day. Now, if you think about it through the internet and other means, we can quickly become uh, attached to this or that personality pastor or theologian or influencer. And before we know it, they are the ones doing the thinking for us, and they slowly become our personal and almost exclusive source of wisdom, literally. Our youth are greatly susceptible to this as well, and even more so, just think about it. Our young people are looking for mental stability because there's plenty of insanity around them. I don't blame them for wanting direction, but it can be a treacherous journey if you look for it in the wrong places. Like Christian in The Pilgrim's Progress, as we desire truth, we can be exposed to many different voices, some of which will lead us astray, and dangerously so. None of us are above this. Through YouTube and other platforms, 
there are people out there establishing themselves as thought leaders and wisdom providers, even if they don't call themselves that. They are literally becoming the grid through which our young people are beginning to think about everything. Do we reject all of it? No, I don't think so. We must retain the good, spit out the bad, and all with great caution. And once again, we are susceptible to this as adults. Certain names, certain ministries can slowly become so essential to our entire worldview that it seems as though they are doing our thinking for us, and rather than God, they become our wisdom. However, as verse 6, six says, the only true and the only unfailing source of all wisdom is God, which means that the pursuit of wisdom for the Christian, listen to this, is ultimately a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. A faith that asks, do I believe God speaks to me through his word and by his spirit? Brothers and sisters, this is a real question. It is a real question. Highly important. Return with me to verse 1. My son. Who is he addressing the word to? My son. If not they, not them, not my, not my sister, not my husband, right, wife. If you receive what? My words. God communicates his wisdom through us, through written words, which you must receive. You know what this is? This is the call of discipleship. It never stops. It never stops. Can that wisdom come through the instrumentality of preachers and teachers and theologians and books? Yes, we are here for a reason. But you must always come to the source. In Acts 16, Lydia's eyes were opened by God to understand what was being said by Paul. So the question is, can God do the same for us? Yes, you too can come to God directly and ask him to give you the eyes to see and understand. But you must seek it. And the only source is God and his word. I'm afraid many Christians say that they believe God speaks to us through his word, written word, but don't live consistently with it. So let me encourage you, knowing the word of God truly is not a privilege reserved for an intellectual elite, but a gift bestowed by the Spirit on all who believe in the Son of God and seek wisdom wholeheartedly. So here's practical advice. First, and this is from Charles Bridges. Here's the, here's the critical thing. Be alone with God and his word. Be alone with God and his word. Make it a daily practice to be alone with God. And then will you learn to call out for wisdom and seek it diligently. Remove all distractions and look to God in and through his word. Second, here's practical advice. As you read and study the word daily, come to God. As you open the word and pray Psalm 119, verse 18, and do so with faith, what does it say? Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray that to the Lord as you 
open his word, as you meditate, as you study, as you read, pray Psalm 119, verse 18, and do so with faith. Now, great application comes out of this. Let me see if I can prepare the way by asking you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. If you are using the Blue Bibles uh, and need some encouragement, this is on page 572. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, were living in rebellion. God was about to send judgment through Assyria. Some Israelites mocked the coming judgment and called it a conspiracy. But here's what God told Isaiah, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And then it says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your what? Your fear, and let him be your dread. In other words, Isaiah, you need to set me as your standard of thought. That's what it means to fear God to some extent. We must think God's thoughts after him. We must conform our thinking to his as revealed in Scripture. This will in turn yield four practical outcomes to which we now come. The pursuit of wisdom yields four practical outcomes, as we see in verses 9 through 21. To grow in wisdom means to grow in submission to God as the standard of truth, goodness, holiness, and blessedness. What does that look like in practice? Well, first, since God is the standard of truth, if you're following your notes, since God is the standard of truth, Pursuing wisdom yields discernment. Pursuing wisdom yields discernment. Read with me verses 9 through 11. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So how do we make knowledge, godly knowledge, pleasant to our souls? We pursue it. We pursue it. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So let me encourage all of us, but especially our younger people among us. I understand that many, many of you are, especially those who are thinking about the prospect of entering adulthood in just a few years or months, are beginning to feel the pressure of what this might mean. And this can be a very confusing world indeed. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing you need. And I'm speaking to the younger people here in particular. There's only one thing you need to succeed in life. The cultivation of the fear of God through the ongoing and intentional pursuit of wisdom in his word. This is what you need. Most times we get in trouble is when we fear the world. You must fear God. You must fear God. In this context, 
Fearing God means you must always remain. You must always count the word as your ultimate standard of truth. Beware, therefore, of the well-intentioned men and women out there who are establishing themselves as dispensers of truth and wisdom, who nonetheless have no distinguishable source of authority to which they themselves are submitting. This is critical. As you listen to whatever advice, commentary, idea, or thought coming from anyone on the web or otherwise through books, ask yourself this question. By what standard is this or that person reaching that conclusion or inviting me to think in this particular way? Upon what source of authority are they standing to say what they say? Who are they following? I've always asked that about Jordan Peterson. Great influencer today. What is his source of authority? To whom is he submitting when he says what he says? Watch out. Be careful. Remember verse 6 and verse 5. Who is the only one who gives wisdom? Is the Lord. Is the Lord. Let me tell you what this means for me. I'm going to make this practical. I'm going to put myself on the hot seat. I'm not aware of how each of my sermons are received or perceived by any of you. I can't. I can't know that. But at the end of the day, my main concern is this. As I stand before you, I want you to know that my supreme desire and calling as a Christian is to be a man who speaks and lives as one under authority and not as one who stands upon his own. The people you listen to, the books you read, the podcasts you frequent, are they speaking as ones under authority and what is that? Or are they seeking to establish their own? Very relevant question for us today. Always consider that. Second, second practical implication. Since God is the standard of goodness, pursuing wisdom yields fortitude. Fortitude. Read with me verses 12 through 15. The result of pursuing wisdom and fearing God is that uh, it will deliver you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. By fortitude, I mean what Jonathan Edwards meant, strength of mind through grace to rule and suppress our unruly passions and to exercise good affections without fearing our enemies. Remember, the world does have a course and it is fiercely extending its invitation for you to follow. But as you pursue wisdom, God will grant you strength of mind. Third, since God is the standard of holiness, since God is the standard of holiness, pursuing wisdom yields purity. Verses 16 through 19. Consider this. Oh, if you pursue God, 
wholeheartedly, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsake the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her path to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Sadly, this is what Solomon himself eventually lost his purity. Why? Well, he stopped pursuing wisdom and gave himself to the lust of the flesh. And what happened then? What were the consequences? Tremendous consequences. The entire kingdom of Israel was divided. Severe consequences involving many people for many generations ensued. Once again, my brother and my sister, do not underestimate the true dangers of sexual immorality. It is real. I believe the adulterous woman here stands as a symbol for all that is impure. Although this doesn't deny the presence of real people who can become a temptation to us and lead us into the abyss. But notice with me the terrifying, notice with me the terrifying finality with which Solomon describes this particular vice in verse 19. Notice the finality. None who go to her, the adulterer, come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Does this mean everyone who ever engages in sexual immorality, adultery, or pers persists in immorality is condemned forever? No. The Bible does show us redemption from sexual immorality in the sense of people being freed from it or from its strong grip, David himself being one of them. But please don't miss this. Don't overlook this. Entanglement. Entanglement with sexual sin is truly, truly dangerous. It seems like the Bible has a special place. This is one of those sins you must flee from. Solomon makes sexual immorality sound so severe that he portrays it as though recovery from it is exceptionally rare. If this sense chills down your spine, then let it do so. It was written like this for that very purpose. If there is anything in your life, you must flee this sexual immorality. You don't play with it. You don't get close to it. You run away from it. As sexual temptations arise, I want to speak especially to young people. Remember the terrible danger and consider this. Obedience to God. Obedience to God is always better. It's always better. Because obedience to God always yields blessing. And fourth, since God is the standard of blessedness, since God is the standard of blessedness, pursuing wisdom yields stability. Stability. Verses 20 and 21. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land 
and those with integrity will remain in it. These two verses remind us of Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Few things can give you a better picture of stability than a healthy, fruitful tree. So if this will be our life, then let's seek for wisdom wholeheartedly and without delay. And so now we come to Solomon's final thought. The pursuit of wisdom issues, issues one sobering warning. The pursuit of wisdom issues one sobering warning. Verse 22. What is that warning? Foolishness is lethal. Foolishness is lethal. Verse 22. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Did you see what verse 22 reveals? It reveals that the opposite of wisdom is not only foolishness at the thought level. Did you see that? It reveals that wisdom, I mean the opposite of wisdom, is not only foolishness at the thought level, but foolishness at the practical level. Because wisdom involves both proper thought and proper living. Lack of wisdom is not only failure to believe in something or know something. Lack of wisdom is also engaging in sinful deeds. How, how much time do we have? Anybody know? Any thoughts on that? Okay. So why don't we do this? Um, let's, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 quickly. So if, if, we, if we run over our time, it's, it's your fault because you're not going there quickly enough. It has nothing to do with me. All right, let's just be clear. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8 through 10. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now notice the, how he mentions practical vices, practical sins for those who strike their fathers and mothers. By the way, this is all a reference to the Ten Commandments. You can find the Ten Commandments all over here, uh, disobedience to the Ten Commandments. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, persecutors, or perjurers. And listen to this, the conclusion, and whatever else is contrary to what? Notice that is not contrary to godly living, but to truth. So life is a reflection of propositional truth, things that we know that lead to a godly life. They're both intimately connected. And this is wisdom, right? We read the word, we consider the propositional truths, and we live them out. So let's, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 2. And I would invite you to meditate more on 1 Timothy chapter 1 later on. But here's, the, here's the, um, the warning that is coming through verse 22 of Proverbs 2. Should we choose not to pursue wisdom, each one of these blessed outcomes will eventually and progressively be replaced by something else. Please don't miss 
this. In other words, don't think for a moment that you can just stand there in neutral, unaffected by the world. That never happens. If you don't pursue wisdom, foolishness will pursue you. And foolishness will take its place. If you don't develop discernment, you will begin to wander off into myths and human philosophies. If you don't develop fortitude of character, you will be easily defeated by temptations always at hand in this world. If you don't develop purity, you will be crushed under the permanent weight of immorality. And if you don't develop stability, the heartaches of a dysfunctional life will be knocking at your door. My friend, you are not the exception, neither am I. Neither am I. Something that I always try to remind my children, myself, my wife, as we gather in family worship, I've said this many times to them, to my own children, to my own life, to my own wife. I, we keep thinking about this. Don't think for a moment. When, when you look around, you look at the world, and you look at lives that have been destroyed by sin, families that have been destroyed by sin, I always say my children, don't think for a moment that you are the exception that that can never happen to you. Don't think for a moment. Just because everything looks wonderful right now, don't think for a moment you are the exception. How do we avoid this? We always must remain dependent, dependent on the goodness and the grace of God. We must know, we must be convinced that apart from pursuing wisdom, we will go off into foolishness. So more than anything, you need to understand this. In light of all that I've said so far, let me point this out to you. The purpose of the pursuit of wisdom is the development of an entire view of the world and of life that is governed by the absoluteness of God and his preeminence above all things. More than anything, when I preach or teach, I want to communicate to you a worldview rooted in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus and guided by his word and spirit. So here's where we end. The pursuit of wisdom points to one glorious person. We can't finish without thinking of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to really, really grasp this. Pay, pay all your attention to what we're about to discuss. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Here's where we need to finish. We're going to finish where we started. As Calvin reminded us, please don't let your mind wander off. As Calvin reminded us, wisdom is to know both God and ourselves. Wisdom is to know God, theology proper, and man, anthropology. Okay? You, you grasp, you understand who God is, you begin to understand who God is, theology proper, and Man, anthropology, undoubtedly then, without question and in conclusion, the only one in all the world, in all the history of the world who can show us true wisdom is the Lord Jesus himself. For who is he? The God-man. At the cross, please think of this, at the cross, we can know God. And at the cross, we can know man. 
as Jesus hanged on that cross, dying. God's wisdom was put on full display like no other time in the history of the world. How? The cross is the wisdom of God, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.24. So ask yourself, what does the cross tell me about me? If wisdom is knowing yourself, then what does the cross tell me about me? It tells you everything you need to know about yourself. First, the cross is the knowledge of men, for it tells you that apart from death, your sins are unforgivable. It humbles you. It tells you that apart from that man, Jesus, shedding his blood, you are left in a state of pure, unending, inescapable misery. That's who you are. As the hymn says in reference to the cross of Jesus, it was my sin that held him there. When you look at the cross, you learn what you actually deserve. Death. Your sins are that serious. Second, the cross is the knowledge of God, for it tells us what, that God truly is majestic in holiness. It exalts him. It humbles you, but it exalts God. God did not spare his own son, but put him on a cross. Why? Because he truly is holy, holy, holy. And yet the cross is the knowledge of both God and man, for it also tells us that we, those sinners, are loved with a love that surpasses all of human comprehension. Therefore, the cross of Jesus is the very heart of God's wisdom and of our wisdom, for it reveals this twofold knowledge like nothing else in the world. We are vile and we deserve death. God is holy and will not send, let sin go unpunished, yet we are loved beyond measure. So there is one primary and central way to pursue wisdom. Look at the Lord Jesus in faith. If we could read Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 in its ultimate sense, it would sound like this. Read it with me. My son, if you receive Christ and treasure him up with you, making your ear attentive to Christ and inclining your heart to him, yes, if you call out for Christ and raise your voice for him, if you see Christ like silver and search for him as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Why? Oh, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, consider him truly Christ crucified. Let him be your wisdom today. Consider what his cross says about you. Consider what the cross says about God and then Rest upon it for your full acceptance with the Father. Remember that in the Lord Jesus, God calls us sons and daughters, for through Christ we were predestined for adoption as sons. Ephesians 1.5. Therefore, through faith in Jesus, we can now come to him and say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder that ultimately our wisdom lies upon one man, the one who died. Christ Jesus, the beautiful one, the glorious one, the holy one, the God-man. And so as we reflect on wisdom, we consider the fact and the truth that by looking at the cross, we learn who we are and we learn who you are. And so we thank you for this majestic revelation of you and of ourselves. And based upon Christ, give us wisdom to continue to live life to your glory and the good of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. the worship team comes forward let us prepare ourselves for